0: Welcome to InGenius, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At InGenius, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today.
1: In this episode, Gabriel and I spoke with Dr Mark Schenk, lecturer in aerospace engineering at the University of Bristol. Dr Schenk told us about his career history and his current research, including engineering, origami and collapsible structures. We also talked about the joy of finding solutions to engineering problems.
2: I'm Mark Schenck. I'm a lecturer in aerospace engineering. So I work in composites and structures as a research group. My PhD topic was unrelated to that was origami techniques. So using origami as an engineering tool rather than art, basically, or a children's plaything, as most people Tend to tend to see if people go, like, oh, can you do an origami crane? No, I can't. It's actually an engineering uh, problem. But yeah, so my 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 background was for PhD was in origami structures, which then became deployable structures for for satellites, which then got me into the aerospace department. So
1: yeah. how did you get interested in origami structures?
2: I think one influence must must be my childhood in the sense that I. Even though I tried to fight against that image of origami as a children's plaything, I did do it as a child, because my mother was really into origami, so I was always aware of it. But then I was doing a PhD, I was doing my masters in a research group where I later did my PhD, and they worked on deployable structures. And origami is an obvious candidate for deployable structures because it folds up and Unfolds. There's a whole range of engineering challenges between <laughs> the paper version and the real and the real engineering version. But it was kind of a natural fit between what I already knew as it was growing up and the research group I was in, who were famous for deployable structures. So it wasn't planned. It was just I turned up to do a PhD. Was well, a bit more work to that, but I started my PhD, and my supervisor said, "What do you want to work on?" And they, I don't know. And within a couple of months, we came up with the army, so not planned. <laughs> Stars aligning then. Yes, and get in a way, it's become a really big field. So this was so my PhD was twelve years ago. Started sort of started my PhD, so things have changed quite a lot since then. So if you were to look now, you can find lots of videos online about using origami for engineering and the mathematics of origami, whereas 12 years ago, it was a very small niche field, which has really, really grown over the last 10 years.
0: So, um, we've seen, but um, people listening may not know, that uh, some of these structures that you've designed have been implemented on satellites that are currently in orbit.
2: Yeah. So, the bit before about origami being very easy to do in paper, hard to do in engineering it means that there aren't many things that have flown in orbit that are really origami- based. But kind of obvious things you might want to use them for. The Japanese launched a solar sail back in twenty ten, thereabouts, and it's still in orbit around the sun. So this is a solar sail where the sunlight actually pushes along the spacecraft. So the force of the sun, the force of the sunlight actually propels the spacecraft. And it's really quite cool. They've got like LEDs that they can turn on and off and make it darker and lighter. So they can also steer the spacecraft by having more and less light on one side the sail, which is a I think it's a fourteen by fourteen meter sail and that had to be origami folded to, to fit up to fit in a smaller launch vehicle. That's probably the biggest thing that's been launched. Um, I worked on a project five, six years ago which has also been launched. It was a kind of an inflatable origami structure which was used on a very small satellite. So it was an origami yeah cylinder which was about six centimeters stowed and deployed about a meter and it was just inflatable and that was there so that was attached to a satellite this deployed so you got a meter long boom and then at the end was another sail but this was designed to clean up space debris so this would be you attach this to a satellite then you deploy the origami boom and then the sails you need the boom to make sure your sail doesn't hit your satellite, and then the, the the sail gives drag, and that slows down the satellite and burns up. So that's the idea was to clean up debris. So as far as I know, it worked, but there was no there was no camera on board, so we we don't have proof, but. We know it, it came down much quicker than planned, so we think it worked. So, as far as I know, we've deployed some origami in space. We don't have proof, but I will take credit anyway. <laughs> it actually worked.
0: So, potentially a candidate for future satellites.
2: Yes, it was launched. It was actually launched again. The same technology, but it hasn't. But it didn't work this time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so it it, 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 there are people working on using origami in space, but I think there's a huge gap still between what we can do in academia versus what we can actually launch in orbit. Because for origami, for example, it's still a craft. You can do all the math you want. You still have to follow it up. So it's still a craft which we still can't model fully. So yes, there will be more satellites with origami in space, but it's tougher than I thought.
0: (laughs) So almost something that can be um, practiced without... Having a doctorate in engineering then, some of these things.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, you don't you don't, you don't need a PhD to fold origami for space. <laughs> absolutely not. I'm trying to get my undergraduates to sort to fold some things for undergraduate projects, which you don't need a PhD to fold. The math know, perhaps. <laughs>
0: do you know the names of any fold patterns?
2: Um the most famous one which you can which you can search is it's called a Mura Ori. So Mura is a Japanese scientist and Ori means fold. Same as origami means to fold paper, so ori is, is fold. So if you if you search for Mura ori, um, you'll find the most famous pattern that's being used by kind of engineers for pretty much any application. And we've tried many other ones, but we keep coming back to this one for some reason. It seems to do everything we need.
1: So you spoke earlier about the problems of transferring origami between paper folding and actual engineering Mm -hmm. applications. Can you go into more detail about that?
2: Yes. So paper is actually remarkably tough. So you can fold a piece of paper over and over again and it won't rip. Try the same with metal or plastic or any kind of engineering material and you can only do like once or twice and it will break. So paper kind of gives you the kind of the, you've made something, you think, oh, that's a wonderful deployable structure. It deploys over and over again. If you were to make it from a real material, it would just break after one attempt. So paper gives you this false confidence that you can actually do this (laughs) at a a, a larger scale. And, And also paper is very flexible. So it can deform in ways that, let's say, plastics can't. So actually, it, it allows for much more freedom than folding from plastic wood, for example. So that's one issue. The paper is actually very, very robust. Also, paper is very thin. So by comparison to its overall size, if you were to make it from, again, a thicker engineering material, the thickness actually starts mattering a lot, whereas you tend to ignore that when making a little paper model. So there's quite a few things that paper can do which deceive you how well you could make it on an engineering scale. And there's also the modeling challenges because as an engineer you have to predict how it behaves once you've actually made it. Can you calculate? Can you predict how it behaves? That turns out to be an ongoing research project. So I've got at least one PhD student looking at how to how to do that. But it's one of those things where if you talk to architects, for example, they love the idea of, I can make a deployable roof and then they come with a paper model and they say, look, it's a really good fault pattern. I agree, but I can't scale it up from a paper model from A4 paper to a stadium roof. There are some challenges in between.
1: Are there deployable
2: stadium roofs? Not using origami, but there's plenty of deploy. There are quite a few deployable roofs, and there are a few where you could call them origami, so they would have very thin membranes. So the roof of the stadium would be a very thin membrane, which you can fold up so they they exist but it, it's more like rolling it up rather than uh, folding it but yeah not pure origami i think we haven't solved that problem <laughs> just yet
1: so you've spoken in our lectures about metamaterials
2: oh, so a metamaterial is, is a material which has properties you can't find in nature not not very commonly so there are metamaterials which for example reflect lights differently than uh, a regular material would or they absorb sound in weird ways or they just they have properties that other materials don't have. So the one it's called an auxetic, so it expands in all directions. So if you apply let's say let's let's picture a sponge. If you take a sponge, you try to pull the sponge, it will always get narrower in the middle. That's common for all kind of engineering materials. So Metal does the same thing, but you can't see it. The sponge is very stretchy, so you can see that. So it always contracts. Whereas if you make some of these metal materials which are auxetic, they expand in all directions. So if you pull your sponge, it would also get fatter in the middle, which is kind of a bit weird, first time around. So so these are kind of the reason why engineers are really interested in this is because you can then kind of tailor make your material for your application. So if you want a special property, you can design this into your material so there's lots and lots of work in that area and lots of ideas very few actually work at a large scale just yet but we can, there are for example invisibility cloaks where people have managed to trick light to kind of be deflected in such a way that you can't see what's behind it in a weird way for example um, the, the auxetic materials that have been tried, that people try to use it for kind of impact absorption because the idea is if you have a foam, for example, which is auxetic, if you compress it, the material would be contracted towards where you're impacting. So the material pulls itself towards where you're trying to impact it, therefore you absorb more energy. So there are applications, it's just really hard to make them at any large uh, scale. But it's really cool, there are really many ways of designing your material properties to behave like anything you've seen before is just we're still 10 years away from it being uh, very common but yeah it's a really really big research area we should teach you more of that at university but it's all so, so new that it hasn't really reached the textbooks yet so
1: hopefully in a few years students will be learning about these
2: hopefully, materials
1: yes. and be able to put them into practice in their projects
2: I think the students at, at university will certainly, uh, within the next couple of years already can. I think people outside of universities it might take a bit longer, but yeah. within universities absolutely there are students doing projects or metamaterials in, in our department and worldwide. So. so how did you find yourself in the engineering world? So very boringly, I was good at math and physics, so I didn't know what to do and picked engineering, which is not the best recommendation for engineering. but. Once I was doing it, I realized that I was a born engineer and that was the thing I really wanted. But it's it's when you start doing engineering that you suddenly... It's problem solving. So you realize that's what you're actually doing is solving problems. So a very common thing we get when people come to university for open days, for example, is to say, oh, should I do mechanical engineering, aerospace engineering, or civil engineering? And you kind of have to explain to them it's all the same skill set you have to solve solve problems using math and physics and sol- and solve new problems and it doesn't really matter what area you're in it's the same skills that you're using so for example i was a mechanical engineer from the undergraduate then i did a biomedical engineering master's then my phd was in a civil engineering group and i worked in an electrical engineering department even though I worked on satellites. I, would, I did deployable structures for satellites, but it was an electrical department, and I came to an aerospace department. So I've worked in all kind of branches of engineering, but at the same time, it's always been the same problem-solving. So I guess the point there is it's if, you, if you're if you interested in problem-solving, yeah, and you are good in math, which I think you'll have to agree that math is probably quite important to, to survive at, at university, Um then it's just a really nice way of solving problems, and it doesn't really matter which one you pick. Although aerospace, it's obviously the one you should you should you should probably pick. <laughs> but um, we mentioned that uh, us interviewees, we both study aerospace engineering. Yes, there's um, that. uh,
0: other disciplines are available. <laughs>
2: um, yes, but the way in many ways it doesn't matter. So you pick the engineering you find interesting. So the aerospace engineers will either come because they find aircraft really fascinating, or satellites, or general spacecraft, or Formula One. That's what kind of draws many aerospace engineers, um, or wind turbines even, some people find that really fascinating as a, as a future uh, sustainable energy resource. It's whatever you find fascinating what you should study that because engineers, we are just problem solvers. Um, so if you like puzzles, that's kind of where you need to be.
1: Do you have a favourite puzzle that you give
2: to your students? <laughs> yes, I do, and I think one of the interviewers is pointing at it in my office. <laughs> yeah, I set, a nice, I set a demo for the first year's first lecture, and it's a deceivingly simple demo which I can't really describe on, on audio, but let's just say that about 90% of the students get it wrong every single year, mm. and it's very good because then the students all realise it's okay to get something wrong. That's actually to be a really useful realisation that they're surrounded by people who also got it wrong. But then I think a couple of weeks later when we actually start discussing it, they see how obvious the answer is if you phrase it in the right way. I think so as much about outbacking on the puzzle as it is about the critical thinking involved? Yes, it's more, it's, it's more once you've got the tools to kind of understand it, then it becomes really obvious. But if you just the intuition fails... And I'll admit this on, on air or live, <laughs> I also got it wrong the first time. Every year I ask a few colleagues, just for fun, and they all get it wrong. So it's not just the first year to get it wrong, it's just the intuition gets tricked. And then when you do it properly, you sit down, you draw what's called a free body diagram, where you draw it properly and you draw all the forces it, and then it becomes obvious. It's just intuition fails and... And those are the nicest puzzles where you can trick people a little bit, and then they make they realise afterwards how easy it was. Mm-hmm. Professor Shank
0: is well known for bringing uh, many demos and uh,
2: toys, in fact,
0: to his lectures because they can demonstrate principles well. And it was just fun. It's yeah.
2: Very memorable. But that's the goal. But I think this is. I think very often, if you, I ask people in later years and about a certain concept and go, oh, I don't remember. Do you remember the baseball bat? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, you remember that concept? Oh, you mean that one? And then it's just linking it back to a demo is something that people remember and then remember the concept by proxy, as it were. Um, Do
1: you have a favorite problem that you've solved or a project
2: that you've worked on? So your favorite problem is always the one you're working on at the moment, because that's the one that's keep, keeping you busy and it's keeping your... <coughs> I think my favourite problem I've solved probably the one that made me realise research was my my profession. So it was back in the Netherlands I was doing my master's degree, and I was working on my research project. Uh, it turned out that that was really, really good research. I was okay doing lectures and things like that. That was, that, that was fine, but then I discovered that was the thing I was really enjoyed, and I got. A, I'm still very, very proud of that paper we wrote about it because it was. My first time I'd actually solved a real problem that nobody had done before, and I was really proud of it. And, and, it was really, and I still can read it looking back more than more than a decade ago. I can still look at it and be proud of it. So, that first time I really solved a new problem was probably still my favorite. And that wasn't my PhD, that was before my PhD. But it was yeah, the first time you've tackled something which is completely new. That was really quite rewarding. And I think that's something we to get our students to do in later years as well <laughs> to do projects which are just new enough you can't look up the answer so the solution has to come from you to actually solve it which can be really rewarding. I also really I am also quite proud of the work we did on the on the on the satellite we talked about before with the deployable um, origami boom and the sail. Not because it was it was a really tough problem to solve and it's not. It was an engineering problem, it was a really tough challenge to make it all work. That's so something I'm actually quite proud of as well. Um, it was an engineering challenge. There wasn't anything there that was, everything was solved before, but combining it all into one solution and then launching it, which is also quite exciting, <laughs> uh, was really quite, yeah, quite cool.
1: So, what specific problem did you work on during your Master's?
2: So, so I was working in, in a biomedical research group, and they were designing uh, kind of mechanisms to help people with disabilities. So they were designing uh, supports for people, for example, with muscle diseases. So they could they had kind of a mechanism that would support a person's arm, and the person's arm wouldn't be naturally strong enough to actually be able to lift their arm, and they use some kind of mechanism to balance it and make it weightless. So that way. Even though the person was very very weak muscles, they could still lift their arm and even lift a cup of tea, which was something they'd never been able to do for the last few years. So that was kind of based around the very same concept that's used for kind of desk lamps. So desk lamps you can reposition very easily because they've got these springs which kind of balance out the weight of the lamp. So they use very similar mechanisms for uh, balancing a person's arm using these kind of springs. So I worked on something very related to that, but we tried to generalize it into making shape-changing structures. So you would have a, what's called a tensequity structure, uh, which is kind of like a truss, which is, a truss is something you might see for bridges, for example, when you look at very old-fashioned bridges, it was kind of triangulated, like triangular structures. Um, but In our case, these trusses were made from cables and uh, bars. So the very thin cable, very thin bars. And by replacing all the cables by these fancy springs, we could make reconfigurable structures. So they can change their shape very easily in the same way that an angle post lamp can, so one of those desk lamps can really easily change shape. We made kind of 3D structures which could change their shape very easily. And this was ultimately inspired by using it for medical devices, for support devices. But we went quite theoretical um, so it was quite an abstract research topic but the application was to use it for uh, medical devices but there's also the reason why the Anglepoise lamp kind of appears in my lectures because it's something I really learned to understand when I was doing my masters but also my master supervisor had at least a dozen in his office um, because he 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 loved these things so I can trace back my research career to Anglepoise lamps in a way which is one of the reasons I showed in my lectures because they inspired me when I was an undergraduate and I kind of didn't like showing it to the next generation in the hope that one or two might remember it afterwards.
1: So, what are you working on currently?
2: So, research-wise, we're looking at kind of uh, shape-changing structures. So, kind of what I did in my masters, but then more, more with composites. So, the idea is that you might want. Let's think about aircraft for a moment. You, you current aircraft have uh, flaps and slats on wings, and they. It means that during takeoff and landing, for example, you look at the window, over the window, you see the wings, and things move away from the wings to create larger surface area during takeoff and landing. So you get more lift when you're not traveling very fast, but you get more drag. That's why you have to remove them again when you're flying. So there are ways of making shape changing wings, kind of like how birds do it. Birds don't have flaps and slats, so they just change the shape of their wing. But it's a bit harder for real aircraft to do that. So a lot of my colleagues are working on kind of shape-changing wings, for example. Uh, so we call them morphing structures because they change change shape. Um, so working on morphing structures, not particularly for wings, but more kind of in general, can you make structures that can change their shape? Um, so using composite materials for that, so composites what people tend to associate with Formula One and things like that, where you have fiber, so carbon fiber, racing cars. And there they you use composites just to make things very light, but you can also u- use composites to give more advanced material properties. So you can actually make things which can change their shape in very interesting ways. So with morphing structures, um, and we, yeah, so we're trying to build structures which can rapidly change. Shape to get, for example, different aerodynamic surfaces, or um, well, that's probably that example. Of it, get very different aerodynamic surfaces. So that's one of the research topics we're working on at the moment. And because we're in a composite research group, we tend to use composite materials to to design those. So that's kind of that's kind of the the main um, topic area, and it kind of links back in what we're doing with teaching. So we're developing a new unit based on what we're doing in our research group so we, in, in, in aerospace engineering for example the first three years are all standard courses and the final year students can pick options and the final year units for example one we're developing one which is how to design these shape-changing structures so we're using what we're doing for research to then introduce those topics to our students who they can hopefully go to industry and actually build these aircraft that can change, change shape um, So this is kind of how the research projects do influence what we teach.
0: On the table here, we have um, something that looks like a a cartoon fish skeleton, a long airfoil shape that's constructed of a a metal bendy spar with um, pieces coming out of it to make the the airfoil constructed out of 3D printed plastic.
2: Yes, the idea there is you don't have a flap coming out of your wing, but the wing can just bend the the wing tips or the, the back of the wings. Uh, can just bend and change the aerodynamic profile. And the advantage of that, it will be much quieter, much uh, much more fuel efficient, so the, so, so the aircraft could be more efficient and make less noise while still performing as it should.
1: So what are the particular benefits of composites over other materials for these sorts of morphing structures?
2: So the way you would make... So when we talk about composite structures, aerospace engineers talk about kind of carbon fibre composite structure. So these are very, very thin uh, fibers, made of carbon, so we're talking fibers in in, in the diameters in the order of eight micron. So a hair is about a diameter of about 30 micron, so much thinner than a human hair. But if you put lots of those side by side, you you can make very, very thin layers called plies of fibers where you all line them perfectly in one direction that you can have one of those layers, and you can add more layers on top in different directions. So, you build up this kind of material with fibres in different directions. And if you look at Formula 1 cars, for example, on the outside, you can often see these kind of carbon fibre patterns where it's woven, so you see one, one layer going one way and then the other way. What makes it interesting for morphing structures is that you can now suddenly make it much stronger and stiffer in some directions. Than others. So for example if you've got a sheet of aluminium when you apply a force to it it will stretch by the same amount in any direction whereas if you've got carbon fibre or any fibre reinforced composite you can make it stiff in one direction, very flexible in another. When you bend it for example suddenly you get weird shape changes. So in industry carbon fibre or fibre reinforced composites tend to be used for weight saving but there is potential for shape-changing structures and this, it is already being applied in industry actually so there are helicopter manufacturers for example where the helicopter blade as it kind of bends it will also twist so it will, it will bend downwards and as it well if that's it started it's bend downwards then you've got lift from the helicopter blade to bend it level but it also twists and the twisting gives you a different aerodynamic profile so you can basically Tune your uh, rotor blade to have a better aerodynamic profile as it bends, and you do that using composites because the composites allow you to kind of build in this this extra functionality. So that not only does it bend as a normal material would, it will also twist at the same time. So you can add in more functionality. So the, so the two two main reasons are weight saving because carbon fibre composites are much lighter, but also you can add in extra. Uh, features like, like wind turbine blades. So, helicopter blades, but also wind turbine blades, which can change their shape depending on the forces acting on it. But that's still relatively rarely used. It is already available in the industry.
1: It's interesting how you spoke earlier about how the morphing wing structure is like that with bird's wing. Yeah. And I know that um, back in the day, the Wright brothers used um, wing twist to yep. still that aircraft. Do you think there's a potential to use that again as a mechanism? Yes. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, so there are reasons we don't we don't design wings like the Wright brothers did <laughs> because they are they've got there are reasons why we don't make very lightweight wings like they had. But yes, the idea of smoothly twisting a wing or at least twisting part of the wing could give you uh, aerodynamic benefits to to, to manoeuvre or to take off. So that's where some of these morphing structures are going towards. The main challenge is that you have to make something which is flexible enough to change shape, but then stiff enough to not deform whilst you're flying. So you can imagine you've got a wing that's really easy to deform, once you're up to speed, the, the forces from the air flowing past would then push you back to some other shape. And you don't want that because then your aircraft becomes very unpredictable. And also, I, th- I can imagine a lot of passengers might not want a wing that changes shape too much because they're used to seeing a wing which just stays looking like a wing <laughs> while they're flying. But yeah, I think the, the Wright brothers, I'm not going to say they were ahead of their time, but the... solution they chose is a perfectly valid solution to maneuver an aircraft and something we might return to. So, a common thread here is that
0: um, some of the ways in which problems are solved in nature are becoming increasingly common and more similar to the ways that problems are solved in the engineering world. Um, Do you think this is a trend that could see to increase or do you see any reasons behind it?
2: So this is called uh, bio-inspired engineering or biomimetics, so mimicry of uh, biological solutions. It's been going on for quite a while, and there's two parts of it. Sometimes people come up with an engineering solution and then see something in nature that looks like it, and then say, "Oh, we discovered the same thing nature did. There are also examples where people look at nature and actively try to replicate what's, what's happening there. So it's two sides of it. Sometimes you also come with the same solution that nature already did. But there are examples, for example, colleagues of, of, of ours uh, in this department looking at bird flight. They are tracking how birds fly, how they chase their wings, how, how they can change the position of their center of gravity. So they, the bird will move their wings around. they change their aerodynamic profile And we're trying to learn how to use that for designing drones, for example. So drones are a good example where a lot of these advanced technologies will be used rather than commercial aircraft, because drones are much smaller, much less costly if things go wrong. So you can try a lot more ideas. So there are people actively looking how bird flight can inspire, especially UAVs, so uh, drones. But these things, in many different fields, people... Try to look at nature and then try to pick up ideas from that. And it's been going on for quite a while, but we are increasingly getting manufacturing techniques that allow us to make things like in nature. So, all the kind of the 3D printing or rapid prototyping techniques that have been developing over the last two decades, you can now print t- materials in much more complex shapes than we could 10, 15 years ago. So, you can now make a lot more shapes that look like natural shapes than you could in the past. So there's two things happening. We can we have the manufacturing techniques that can actually allow us to make these biological-inspired structures, and we can better model them as well. But yeah, it's a trend that, is, that keeps developing. Anything else you'd like
1: to talk
2: about? Anything completely away from engineering, so like an oddball in the mix. Did I mention I'm an engineer and become an engineer at heart and soul? <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll find a lot of academics do take their job home in the sense that we do love what we do. I find my job so interesting that a lot of things I read outside of work will be related to. Shame-changing structures, engineering, I read those things for fun, even though it's work. So no curveballs, I'm afraid.
1: Do you find yourself implementing engineering solutions at home then?
2: No, I don't have an automatic plant watering system at home, no, I Mm -hmm. do it by hand. (laughs) But yeah, I do find myself reading a lot about engineering whilst... In my my spare time, so many hours you can watch YouTube videos about really interesting aircraft and spacecraft, and you you find you go down a rabbit hole of really interesting engineering videos. Other really, really good kind of uh, YouTube channels like Real Engineering, uh, Veritasium, I think it's called. There's some kind of uh, mathematical uh, YouTube channels. Really geeky, but really quite fun. Lots of documentaries about aircraft. There's cans of documentaries about the Concorde, which is an endless pleasure to read to to learn about how the Concorde works, for example. 1950s British bombers, which are really beautiful aircraft. You can go down rabbit holes of (laughs) of videos from YouTube, which I'm sure you've done as well. I
1: think that's probably about it. Yeah, that's probably about it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us. My pleasure.
0: If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.